Hello, it's Kamal Ahmed here, and I'm here to tell you about Energized. The brand new podcast, Intelligent Squared, is launching in partnership with Ipadrola. The climate crisis is the most pressing issue of our time. Temperatures are set to rise more than 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels in the next two decades, an increase that will cause irreversible damage to our planet. But is there still hope? If humans are to blame for climate change, then we must also provide the solutions. And that's where Energized comes in. Join me as I bring together experts and policymakers to delve deep into the key issues at the heart of the global drive towards net zero and the innovations that promise to accelerate the energy transition and transform the way we live. Just search Energized wherever you get your podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thanks for downloading the Intelligent Squared podcast. Here in London, we're very excited about our forthcoming event, Fake News, The Facts, on May the 25th. On stage, we're going to have Armando Iannucci, the creator of The Thick of It and Veep. Tim Wu, the former White House advisor and internet expert. Craig Silverman, BuzzFeed's media editor. And James Dellingpole, the UK editor of Breitbart News. We're announcing more speakers very shortly. And you can buy tickets at our website, intelligencesquared.com. Now, here's this week's episode. We hope you enjoy listening. Good evening, everybody. It's, uh, it's delightful to see you all here. My name is Robert Collins. I'm the senior producer at the Global Debate Forum, Intelligence Squared. Um, we are so happy to be here tonight on the eve of the PAGE Ministerial Conference 2017, being hosted by the Partnership for Action on Green Economies, and also by the ministry here in this delightful setting where we are. Uh, and we're thanking them very much for having us. This evening sits a little bit outside of the conference in affiliation with the conference, and it's being hosted by us at Intelligence Squared. We're headquartered in London, and also by the Green Growth Knowledge Platform. And it's a delight uh, to be doing this with them, and also especially to be welcoming our extremely distinguished panel of speakers, and also you here. Um, Many of you here this evening are from the Hertie School of Governance here in Berlin. We've heard questions from you in advance, and we're going to be coming later to you in the discussion to hear those questions so that you can put them to the panel and enter into a dialogue with them. We are discussing tonight a question which goes to the heart of the themes of the conference which all of you have come from far and wide to attend. The theme this evening is, whose prosperity, how can we build inclusive and sustainable economies? You don't have to look very far to feel that globalization is is at something of an inflection point. It's a moment where a lot of people are stopping and pausing to ask what it's doing. Um, Whatever your 
political sensibility or affiliation. Um, most would agree that globalization has brought a huge amount of good to a huge amount of people. It's raised hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. Um, statistics show that, in fact, since the financial crisis of 2008, income levels for the poorest have actually risen out of absolute poverty in a significant way. But on the other hand, I think all of us uh, are aware of the enormous amount of inequality which has been produced and generated by these forces of globalization. Um, one stunning statistic um, released by Oxfam in their report earlier this year is that currently the eight richest people on the planet own the same wealth as the poorest 3.6 billion people on the planet. Whatever you expect to hope and to achieve from globalization, I think it's clear, I think everybody would acknowledge that such an equality is going to put enormous strains on democracies around the world, something that we're even seeing not just in the developing world, but even now in the developed world, in political events in the UK and the US, and the rise of populism and populist parties in Europe. Clearly, this is something we need to be studying and examining. Bringing into that as well are the huge environmental strains that the world is being put under by these forces. Is there a different way of us imagining the economic models that we're all currently pursuing? That's the question we're going to be asking tonight and asking how can that environmental agenda, how can the business growth agenda be reconciled and negotiated? These are not simple issues to resolve. But to help ask those questions and help resolve them this evening, we have an incredible panel of speakers representing, we're delighted to say, the entire array of organizations who are working to resolve such issues. I'll introduce them now. To let you know how the evening is going to work, we're going to speak for a little while here. There'll be some discussion on stage. Each of the speakers will have a moment to speak on a specific question. We will then come to you and we look forward to hearing your questions. So first, sitting here, we have Winnie Bianyima. She is the executive director of Oxfam International, a position she's held since 2013. She previously served as director of gender and development at the United Nations Development Programme and was a senior diplomat and politician in Uganda. Next to her, Professor Tim Jackson. He's the professor of sustainable development at the University of Surrey. He's been at the forefront of international debates about sustainable development for over two decades. And he is the author of Prosperity Without Growth, Foundations for the Economy of Tomorrow. Sitting next to him, Minister Esther Bayasuko. She is Barbados's Minister of Labor, Social Security, and Human Resources Development. She was formerly Minister of Family, Youth, Sports, and Environment, and General Secretary and Vice President of the Barbados Association of medical practitioners. Sitting next to her, we're delighted to have Elliot Harris, a UN Assistant Secretary General and head of the UN Environment Program's New York office. He previously worked in the Fiscal Affairs and Strategy and Policy Department at the IMF. And finally, Dr. Jürgen Horaeus. He is the Chairman of the Supervisory Board of Horaeus Holding, a leading technology uh, firm here in Germany. He is the current chair of the B20, the Business 20, during the German G20 presidency. He also serves as chairman of the board at UNICEF in German and the Zoological Society of Frankfurt. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our panel.
We're going to start off、um, by asking each of you a question. In in the plethora of issues we're trying to resolve now and reconcile, we're going to put it to you: What is the single policy that you would like to see enacted to help build more sustainable and inclusive economies? Winnie, if we'll begin with you, please. Thank you, and thank you for inviting me and Oxfam to this discussion. You know. We people in the developing countries, in spite of the benefits of globalization, have been skeptical about it. It is good now to see more people in the north also questioning globalization, especially since the political upheavals of 2016: the Brexit vote, the election of Trump, the rise of the far right. It's good we are all now talk questioning globalization. You ask me. What is the one policy? That one policy change. Well, I think a good starting point would be to look at giving everyone a decent job, decent jobs. Wages in the low-skill sectors have been falling, falling behind production for a long time, while pay at the top, wages at the top. Have continued to skyrocket. In the develop, mostly in the emerging economies, but also in the rich countries, wages at the bottom have been stagnating. When you talk about the success of globalization, for me, what I see are millions of women working for poverty wages, with no rights. In the export processing zones, you see in all these developing countries. I can give you an example of Myanmar. We did a research there amongst young women working for textile factories that produce the clothes we wear in the main brands like Gap, like H and M, and so on. These women work for work six hours a day, work for four dollars a day. If they get pregnant, they may be fired. These are the conditions under which they work: poverty wages. This is not a success story for the millions of people. It's a story of inequality. So here's the one policy I would go for: that every government goes for establishes a minimum wage that is a living wage, and that this legislation to regulate to put a, a ratio. A ratio between pay at the top and pay at the bottom—that's not more than 20 to one—and this is not unrealistic. We're seeing progress in this direction. Last year, Cambodia, Indonesia, and Vietnam, at the ASEAN World Economic Forum meeting, proposed that there is a regional minimum wage to stop this race to the bottom, where companies push governments to lower wages. Take away workers' rights, lower tax rates, in order for big business to make profits for a few. So we need more than one policy, but this is the one policy I'm putting on the table. Winnie, thank you. Tim,、um, I mean, I did think of a policy which which outlawed anyone thinking that one single policy could change all of these issues. But, <laughs> That's、um, the good one. But、uh, but but I do see the point that we have to somehow get to the crux of where things are, and I think actually Winnie's 
when his description of work as a fundamental parameter of an economy that works for everyone is, is, is really nice. I mean, first of all, if you're asking who's prosperity, you have to think about what prosperity means. And the typical assumption, the conventional assumption, has been that it just means growing the GDP as fast as we can, as far as we can, and hoping that the poorest will catch up to the richest. And, and, and we have not seen that happening, which is exactly why the sorts of policies that Wynne has pointed out are, are really important. But when you start from that question, what is prosperity, then you begin to get a different kind of answer. And you, and you learn from ordinary people or from philosophy or from literature or from studies of well-being or from community studies on the ground, you learn that it's about um, our quality of life. It's about our health. It's about the education of our kids. It's about the security of our neighbourhoods, it's about our sense of community, it's about our sense of purpose and identity in the world. And actually, a, a huge part of that sense of purpose and identity in the world comes from participating in society. And in a society where there is work to be done, are there sick people? Yes, of course there are. Are there kids to be taught? Yes, of course there are. Are there buildings to be refurbished? Are there infrastructures to be transformed to low-carbon structures? Yes, of course they are. In a world where there is so much work to be done, it has to be a key part of a policy framework to ensure that on the one hand, people have that right to work which guarantees them a sense of participating in society and on the other hand, the work that needs to be done gets done. So the economist Hyman Minsky once said that government should think of itself always as employer of last resort. It should always make sure that we're aiming for full employment. But if you ask the question, how does it get to that, governments are too often hamstrung, in particular by financial systems. So in addition to the work-related thing that Winnie has gone for, I'd like to point to the financial system and say, actually, we have to have a financial system that works for everybody. Mm -hmm. We have to have mm -hmm. a money system mm -hmm. that works for everybody. And in particular, we have to reverse the huge inequality that comes out of a money system where 97% of the money supply is created at interest by private banks. Mm -hmm. And so my single policy, I think, would be to return to something like a sovereign money system, a, a full reserve money system, which actually gives governments once again the freedom, as is their right to have, to invest in their societies, to mm -hmm. create health systems that work, to create education systems that work, and yes, to be the employer of last resort. Some sort of sovereign money system that would facilitate that power of government to invest in society and reduce the huge inequality that at the moment comes through the financial system. Minister Esther, we, we've talked already about sort of the, the desire of governments to, to promote employment, full employment, um, under huge strains. Talk to us a little bit about what the obstacles are to that. And you, we're very aware that on the panel, you're the person at the front line of that. You're, you're the minister for human resources mm -hmm. development. What, it is, what is it, you're, or rather, which are the levers you're seeking to push very specifically to achieve that? And what are the biggest obstacles in the way to you? Okay, well, first of all, let me say thanks for having me here. And I want to say thanks to my Prime Minister, because he was to have been on this panel, <laughs> and he is not. But I think it's quite fortuitous, because uh, 
Otherwise, labor would not have been here. <laughs> so I think, as a minister of, I think as a minister of labor, it is important that I am at this discussion because I believe when we're talking about inclusive and sustainable development mm -hmm. that we have to talk about labor. Winnie mentioned, and rightly so, uh, wages, and that's important. Uh, in Barbados, this discussion on inclusive and sustainable development centers really around the greening of our economy. Barbados is a small island developing state, and as such, it is, it is imperative to us that we green our economy. And at the same time, we're taking the opportunity to ensure that greening our economy means also uh, development, not just economic development, but multidimensional social development, as well as uh, development uh, of our people and all, in all other areas as well, environmental and so on. So this is, this is the, the focus for us right now in Barbados, greening our economy. And we want to ensure that as we change systems in Barbados, because greening the economy means that we have to change a lot of our systems. Uh, Barbados's main producer is tourism. And there is a lot of greening that has to happen in tourism because while it does bring us jobs, and our Minister of Tourism is now on record as saying <coughs> that in another five years, Barbados will have full employment through tourism. And that's fine, and I laud him for that, and I'm right behind him because we want full employment. We have not recovered yet from the economic crisis of 2008. We, our employment figures are coming, unemployment figures are coming down, but they're not yet where we want them. So tourism is fine, but a lot of what happens in tourism is not sustainable. So we have to ensure that there is uh, sustainable practice going on in tourism. It means that we have to change the way a lot of things happen uh, in, in tourism. The main policy I would like to see implemented, certainly at a local level, is dialogue. Because if we are to mandate dialogue, in Barbados we have a process of social partnership, a social, social partnership that is perhaps lauded around the world, tripartite, where government, employers, and workers come to the table and we discuss a number of things. But it's voluntaristic. And with globalization, we have a lot of companies coming into Barbados that don't really understand that way of doing things, and so they make their own decisions, and we are just kind of left making, playing catch-up. Now, for our economy to grow, we're a very small economy, and we do encourage foreign direct investment. But at the same time, we need to encourage that those players coming into our market dialogue. We need dialogue at the government level, agency to agency, ministry to ministry. We need government at the, um, dialogue at the national level as well. But we also need uh, dialogue with our multinational enterprises that, that come in to Barbados so that they can dialogue not just with government, but with the representatives of labor and all the other stakeholders, uh, the uh, CSOs, civil society organizations, and so on, to ensure that what they are doing in Barbados redounds to the benefit of all the people. It's not just for them. And, you know, when I talk policy, I think one of the things I want to see happen, not at the national level, but perhaps at the global level, is that we have agencies like WTO and the OECD that mandate a lot of what else happens. They tell us about corresponding banking, correspondent banking. They tell us about double taxation agreements and being trans and transparency. Uh, they tell us about trade and trade agreements. But nobody is really looking at the things that really matter, at how, it, how these trades, how this business affects society, how it affects lives. And I think that is where the dialogue needs to happen as well. Elliot, appropriately, we will come to you now from the UN perspective, of course, within all these, all these desires and aspirations, 
There's a planet to protect as well. We want the best for the populations, the best for the workforce. We also need to do all of this, as Tim, you talk about as well, uh, within the frame of not just protecting the most vulnerable people, but protecting the vulnerable structure within which all economy is happening. How do we fit in the environmental agenda into all of this? Uh, thank you, Robert. If you had asked me this question three years ago, uh, when I was just starting in on this job, I would have said what we need to do is make sure that we can understand and price the externalities that have led us to this situation where it seems to be okay to pursue economic gain at the expense of social balance and environmental health. But over the last three years, um, my views have changed a bit. I think um, the question of getting the prices right is still paramount. But getting the prices right alone isn't going to do it unless those prices are fed into a new business model that does not have at its heart the focus exclusively on profit to the detriment of everything else. Now, I think that we're at a, another inflection point, not just in the whole process of globalization, but in the process of what people expect from private business. And, and I really do want to emphasize this point. Uh, Tim, I'm going to disagree with you in a very violent way. Ooh. I don't violent want, I sorry. absolutely do not want to see governments being in the lead on all of this. For one simple reason, governments can't. They don't have the capacity and they certainly don't have the resources. They may have the best of will, but even that can't be guaranteed now as we can see from some of the recent outcomes. But if you think about how much taxation a government would have to impose in order to have the resources to do one hundredth of what needs to be done, you realize that we pretty soon end up with a rather centralistic and, and dirigistic system. No, this has to come from business. But what has to happen is that the way business operates has to change. Mm -hmm. And so if you were to ask me what is the one policy I would recommend, I would say disclosure. Disclosure of the impact of business activities. All right? Now, it's starting to happen already. We see it happening in, in many stock exchanges around the world where the stock exchanges are either requiring their listing companies to disclose their environmental footprint or encouraging them to do so and hoping to support them as they move towards that. But the fundamental issue here is that if you have to disclose, then you have to measure. And if you measure what you're doing, then you can manage it. If you haven't got the information, you're not going to manage it. If you're unaware of what your impact is, you can't correct for any negative impact. And we see more and more that there is a, a tendency, a, a trend developing toward what I would call and what we call now in, in UNEPFI, positive impact investing. Yeah? Which is that investors are looking for opportunities to invest in a way that on net basis is positive. It may have certain downsides, but when you add up all the positives against all the negatives, you end up with something that contributes. And I think if we have disclosure as the driving principle, disclosure across the entire economy, across the entire society, we will know what we are doing, we will know what the impact of what we do is on the environment, on our social outcomes. And we can manage our way towards the kind of agreed outcomes that are represented in the Sustainable Development Agenda. So I'd leave it at that. Thank you. Um, Jürgen, we've had Winnie talking about uh, what needs to be done in terms of development, Tim talking about what governments can do, 
Esther at the sharp end of government action, talking to multinationals. Elliot is saying, full disclosure from companies all around the world, you're the chairman of, of a large company, a privately owned company that has business everywhere. Um, from your own perspective as a business leader, how possible do you see that? And perhaps importantly, <coughs> how do you see the potential for other big companies that I aren't think, on the stage? I think we exactly heard the problems already in this, from these four people talking. And now you, you, we see it globally. I put some words of inequality and of dialogue. I'll start with the inequality. Inequality to measure who, who is a standard. You compare Germany with Greece, you compare Greece with Africa, then you compare some countries in Africa. So what is a standard? This is, this is one. The dialogue, the B20 is a part of the G20, the 20 world-leading countries that have about 85% of the GDP. And we try the business part and then the labor part and so on. And we try to communicate, to make statements to the G20 politicians. We have uh, seven groups, seven task forces with up to 100 people and try to convince each other that at the end the statement we find is not a a very soaped, nothing to say, but to get an agreement, not with majority. And this is unbelievably difficult. Now, with, especially now with the with US, they, they are against everything, uh, so which ne never was before. So, as you asked for making more dialogues, I think we have had so many dialogues, especially if I've participated on many of these uh, events like this in the last months. Yes, everybody is right, everybody, but nothing is done. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to do something. Yes? And uh, if I look on the business, as long as companies uh, have, to, uh, have to work for, the, for their shareholders, pension funds and so on, they are measured on the interest rate, on the dividends, on the, on the growth, and so on. We are family-owned companies, much, much easier. We do this at, since 160 years. So profit is okay, but it's not the only, only measurement. We are not under pressure because our shareholders are, are modest in, in their behavior. They do everything. They are driving small cars and so on. But it's... They have it since generations, and I hope it stays like this. But if I've been chairman of the supervisory board of an MDAX company, it's a totally different world. It's a totally different if they are 2% down in the, in the forecast, then, then the, uh, the, the, the president, the CEO knows that maybe another two years he has a chance to stay and then he will be fired. So this is the system and to change the system I think is very, very difficult. And I think we have, if we look for the poorest, which is especially Africa, uh, we have to change the way that we spend the money. In 50 years we spent billions and billions and nothing happened. 
And I think one of the reasons, and we have the discussion if it should be budget help or if it should be project help, but our dream that we should turn these countries to our thinking of human rights, of democracy, and so on, and so on, and try to put this all together, and then start to work, this doesn't work. And if we see in the comparison uh, the Asian countries who have been 50 years ago on the same level, South Korea, Taiwan, they are fantastic today. Singapore, everybody says Singapore, but they are not de democratic. My God, I think Singapore is one of the best run countries in the world. So, they don't do what, what we think, but they did it in their way. So I think we have to change a little bit. In Most of them were autocratic systems. So if the leader, if the ruler is good, it's great. We need a democracy to get rid of the ruler if he's not good. But to start, I think we have to, we have to give them their own freedom, their ownership, and start in the beginning, accept inequality. If I look, we are here in, the, in Berlin, which was east and west, mm -hmm. and the former DDR, more or less they were equal, nobody had anything. And after, after the 20 years, we have an inequality. Those who were, took the chance, especially young women, who left the country, the, the eastern part, went to the south. They left the men, young men, who were not flexible, who then turned for not right-wing, who, who were frustrated with <coughs> no women and put power in the, in, the, in the eastern part of the country. So we had to accept inequality uh, to get the things moving. But uh, Jürgen, just quickly, before I, I want to come back to you, Winnie, on this as well, <coughs> what would you like to see in terms of promoting green economies in, in the developing world in particular? What would you like to see the UN doing, perhaps, that it's not doing? I, th I think it will not work that we convince the people to be better people, not to go in the vacations, use the, use the planes and do this not, and do this not, and do this not. You will get 10%, maybe 20% of the people who, who do this. The rest, we have to give a bonus, we have to give incentives, we have to do something that they find out. Like, like for instance, I suggested in, in China, uh, where price for electricity and water is nearly zero, because they said people cannot afford. They said, okay, so say for a household for two or three people, the basic need is very, very low, And then you have a, a progressive price. The more, when they take more electricity for TV, for this, for this, for this. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Then they have to pay. They have to pay. Then to pay. Then they, that makes sense. 
precisely on that point, we're going to come to questions from you in the audience very soon now. Uh, Winnie, precisely on that point of sort of moving away from the aid idea to facilitating economies to be entrepreneurial on their own, facilitating and, and uh, enabling women into the workforce and the huge dramatic change that can have. In terms of all of that, all of these, Jürgen has just pointed to the fact, of course, people aren't going to do things uh, that for the good of the environment, especially in the private sector, arguably, just for the sake of it. Um, Oxfam, I understand, is, is moving far more into advocacy and pressure rather than aid itself. How do you see this renewable green agenda fitting in to the poverty alleviation? We've just been talking about economic inequality, mm -hmm. globalization. Globalization is like a high-stakes game without a referee. We have a situation where rich countries sit and write the rules for themselves mm -hmm. and then claim victory. We have, and this is not going to continue, with a multipolar world, with emerging economies, the system is collapsing because more and more countries are speaking out and saying, it's not fair. Take the tax rules. We need a global corporate tax reform because, actually, the developing countries lose more from tax dodging than the rich countries. Mm -hmm. Big business is having a field day, mm -hmm. taking money out of the developing countries, avoiding taxes, mm -hmm. $8 trillion dollars is sitting in tax havens of wealthy people's money, is sitting in tax havens untaxed. That's, use, that's money that's socially useless. It's not tax, it's not paying for hospitals, for roads, for, for schools in the countries no, where the production is done. We're asking for a global corporate tax reform so that these companies pay where they make their production and pay their fair share of taxes. And we won't need aid. We won't need to be lectured about aid if are, the companies, the multinationals, pay their fair share of taxes. Global tax reform, let's try and come to that before we close as well. But just very briefly, Esther, I wanted, wondered if you would take up on that point. We're talking about sort of the, 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 the greening movement that's happening in a country such as Barbados. Are there specific things that you feel very quickly, very instantly, could help Barbados as a country transition to a sustainable economy. What, what are the obstacles being put in your way, if any, right now in the broader community, world community? Yeah. Um, one of the obstacles that I'm facing, and this is why I mentioned dialogue, and not dialogue in the sense of having a meeting, but dialogue in the sense that the players, especially the foreign investors. Barbados depends heavily on foreign direct investment, which is what I was saying earlier. And as you said, we need a referee. We need a global referee. Because what, one of the challenges is ensuring that when uh, our foreign investors come, because we need their input in our development, and they understand that there is a process for uh, doing an environmental impact assessment. Uh, but we need to have a, a larger conversation. It cannot just be a conversation about the impact that your construction will have on the environment. We need to discuss the impact that your construction and your business will have on our society, will have on jobs, on knowledge transfer. Because what happens in Barbados, uh, and in a lot of countries in the Caribbean, I know for a fact, 
when the investors come to Barbados, they may agree that to our um, environmental rules, and there are a lot of concessions that they get to come and so on, but then they bring all the jobs with them, or they bring all the high-level jobs with them, and we just get the, the, the laborers. Mm -hmm. And we need to, they need to agree to knowledge transfer over, you know, over, maybe over a period of time so that we do get that um, human resource uh, development, develop the capacity uh, locally. That's one of the things that we need to see. The, in, the money, we are not a tax haven. We're a low-tax jurisdiction. Um, but again, the money leaves the country. Very little of it is invested mm -hmm. uh, back in Barbados. And that is something else that we need a global referee. I like the term global referee. We need somebody to be able to say, but hold on, this benefits you, the enterprise. It benefits your country, which is by and large a developed country in most cases. It's not, it's not benefiting these little countries that you have come uh, to, to work. We do insist on the wages, and this is why I say dialogue where everybody is at the table, where the trade unions are at the table, where the government is at the table, the policymakers, the, um, develop, the town planners developing or our agencies, everybody is at the table so that we can talk about how what you are doing here isn't just benefiting your business, how it is benefiting, uh, benefiting us. As far as developing a green economy, we are trying to... Um, establish, to, to train our people with the innovation, for the innovation that is needed to green a lot of mm -hmm. enterprises. But with very limited fiscal space, we still require the foreign investment. So the argument is still the same. We require the foreign investment. So we want to see tourism done in a greener way. So all the multi, multinational um, the big hotel chains that we know around the world when they come to Barbados, when they come to the Caribbean. Everybody wants to have a hotel, you know, what part of their chain in the Caribbean. It's paradise. But when they come, what's your footprint? What's the footprint that you're leaving there? Um, you're not leaving, you know, how are you helping to develop the society? How are you leaving the environment? Are you leaving it better than you found it? These are the things that we need to ensure that all who come to invest will make our place better for us as well, not just for them. Jürgen, did you want to come back? I sense you wanted to say something in this. A global I, I, referee, foreign business doing business differently. Yeah, you, you, you blame the, co the companies that make some money and so on. But I see the same in, 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 uh, in Africa. When the Chinese built a school for UNICEF, then they bring 100 people. I don't know why the country says, you stay out, you stay out. We, we, can, we can build or at least 50% or 80% of the employees we will come from us. The countries, they have to take the responsibility. And the leaders shouldn't take the money. If you look on Nigeria, they are rich on, on, on all, all sorts of minerals, and the, and the people are poor. And where, where does the money go? So it's not a blame always on the, on the industry. From, from, it's a blame on the, on the corrupt managed governments. But that's not necessarily so. Not in Barbados. No, 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 I'm not. <laughs> Thank you. But, <laughs> but no, sometimes the, the governments cannot say, take your money, we don't need it. Because the truth is, sometimes the governments do. If it is not for the help of these governments, they do uh, they wouldn't be able to have the schools and the roads and all the infrastructure that they need. So they do need the help. But the thinking has been, he who pays the piper calls the tune. What we need yeah. is somebody to say, well, yeah, that makes sense, yes, but 
if you're going to come into the country, you also have to um, yeah. leave something behind, assist Can in some way. Really, it's not about pointing fingers. No. We have a rigged economic model. There's a role for governments and there's a role for the private sector. But let me talk about the private sector, the kinds of business models that we need. We know, to give you an example, in the UK, companies were giving, in the 70s, companies were giving their shareholders 10% of profits, 10% of their profits to their shareholders as dividends in the 70s. Today, that percentage is 70% going to their shareholders. Cocoa farmers in the 80s were getting 18% of the price of a chocolate bar. Today, they get 6% of the price of a chocolate bar. Something is wrong. We have an extreme form of shareholder capitalism that is short-term kind of business that's pumping money from workers, suppliers, consumers, and handing it just to rich shareholders. We don't have companies that work for everybody, that benefit a worker, that benefit a supplier, that like a woman cocoa farmer, that benefit a consumer. No, it's companies benefiting their rich shareholders primarily. This is a wrong form of capitalism. We are looking for a, an unrigged economy that benefits all. We have businesses that don't work like that. And we want governments to promote those kinds of businesses that benefit everybody. It can be different, and governments need to step back and play their role, get out of a cozy bed with business, just doing what business wants. Put down the taxes, put down the wages, take away people's rights so that big business can maximize profit. No. Well, I just want to start with a couple of questions from two students at the Hertie School of Government here in Berlin. If they're in the audience, Jose Imer Campos. Here, if we could get a microphone to Jose here, and also to Isaac Joseph, who is back there. Thank you. If you would just stand to put your question to the panel, please. Yeah, hello, my name is Jose Campos from the Hertie School of Governance. In this talk that we have discussed a new structure, a new global structure, and also you mentioned price as, a, well, if the individual doesn't change behavior, if you tell them, maybe with the price, that's how we adapt the behavior. My question goes, in this world, work to build a more inclusive and sustainable economy, a lot has been talked about carbon pricing. Uh, it seems there's a general consensus on the effectiveness and need of this carbon pricing. Uh, but an international agreement right now on a single price really seems unlikely. Which specific approach to implement and should the world follow? Another international agreement or just leave it to the discretion of national governments? or try to create a new agenda within business and governments to create this new structure towards this specific direction of carbon pricing. Let's just pause on that for a second. Carbon pricing we've been talking about already. Let's answer that. Let's go to the next question. Thank you very much, um, um, Mr. Collins. And um, 
Thank you to Biyama for talking about climate change and talking about social, social justice, environmental justice. And my question is really about uh, climate change, which is one of the greatest challenges of this century, as we all know. And now thinking more in terms of the environment as a global public good, what role do you think um, uh, green taxes would or should play in achieving global social and environmental justice? Thank you. Green taxes and carbon pricing. Tim, is there something you want to jump in on? Yeah, very similar ideas, of course, and and, and at their heart, um, absolutely sensible because um, green taxes is essentially the idea is that you tax bads rather than goods. I mean, we live in taxation systems which, Mm. broadly speaking, tax people's labour, which is something we want in the economy, and don't tax resource consumption or carbon or environmental damage or any of the other externalities that Elliot mentioned mm. at the first instance. So, so, the, so the idea, actually, of internalising, as economists like to say, internalising the social costs into business decisions and into government decisions and into household decisions is absolutely right. And you have to be able to do that within a framework that makes sense mm-hmm. um, in terms of, in terms of um, fiscal responsibility. You have to also, and this is the thing that absolutely has not been happening, has held up green taxes and carbon pricing for decades, is you have to be able to bring business along into that discussion and, and actually the difficulty is that there are losers in that game because there's a whole lot of businesses out there who are producing the impacts that are causing the social costs and at the same time taking profit from it. So the system as a whole ends up actually being a a system in which you privatise all the benefits and you socialise all the costs. And that is, is absolutely at the heart of the inequality that we're trying to address. So both of those suggestions are absolutely profound. It does seem to me, though, that, that you're not going to get much progress in that until you somehow resolve this conundrum which the panel actually has identified very early on, which is that government hold, is held in hock by the, by the interests of business, partly because of its own funding model and the money system that underlies it, which comes back for me to the point that I started with. There is a huge issue here of climate injustice, there is a need to raise money that will go towards adaptation. Climate finance on the table now, only 16% goes to the adaptation needs of the poor countries, poor people, who didn't in the first place cause climate change. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's very important that whether it is carbon taxing, whether it is uh, uh, public finance that we prioritize resources for climate adaptation for the poorest countries to be able to lift themselves out of poverty in a situation that's more complicated, that's further complicated by climate uh, uh, change. Things are changing and there are signs of hope we are seeing developing countries taking this challenge and being more in the lead than even the rich countries who are the cause of climate Mm -hmm. change. We're seeing more innovation, commitment. It seems that China has peaked in emissions. India is making progress in, in the solar area. 
South Africa is now one of the 10 leading innovators in solar technology. So we're seeing a lot of developing countries moving and emerging economies taking the lead. But we don't see the rich countries taking the responsibility they should take to reduce carbon emissions. 2.7 degrees in the Paris Agreement is still a recipe for catastrophe. Catastrophe. Because we know that beyond 2 degrees warming, we're going to have catastrophic, catastrophic impacts. So for me, again, it's a challenge to, it's a, a challenge of justice, environmental justice, that the rich countries, mm -hmm. the rich companies step up to the plate. Ali, we'll come to you. Esther, green taxes, yeah. carbon pricing, is this going to help? Barbados? Well, we, it, it's something that we're trying in Barbados mm -hmm. because just, just like Winnie said, you know, Barbados and the, the small islands of the Caribbean, we are hardly producers uh, of, of greenhouse gases. But because we're small islands, because we're in the middle of the sea, you know, just one centimeter of sea level rise can destroy our coastline, which for us is our source of income because between fisheries and tourism, we depend on our oceans. And any climate, any sea level rise will affect us. We are doing our best to improve ourselves, but we are vulnerable through no fault of our own. You know, as, as Winnie said, we are not the ones that produce the greenhouse gases, but already we are seeing the effects. And so we've had to put a lot of our resources, even though we've been battling through the recession, We've still had to say that work has to continue in terms of climate change, adaptation, and mitigation. We've had to put a lot of emphasis mm. in that. We've had to reform our economy to a green economy. It's a transition process. We're still there. But the reason we have to do that and not wait until our GDP is where we want it to be is because it cannot wait. It is urgent. We have to do that now. And we need the folks with the money, the, the World Bank and, and all the other agencies to say, sure, they're high income, we're high middle income, but um, they still need assistance because they do have that vulnerability that's not going anywhere. Elliot. Um, thank you, Robert. I think um, coming back to the question of a, a global approach to carbon uh, pricing, I think that is going to be very difficult to achieve because uh, one fact remains, fiscal policy, taxation in particular, is something that governments don't like to share. They like to protect, uh, reserve for themselves the right to make their own policies without having to follow a, a, a rule from somewhere else. And that's very, very difficult to overcome. I do think that there will be more and more examples as we go along of countries that, in their own interest, start to tax carbon. That generates resources that they can use for other forms of adaptation for social policies to ease the transition away from the fossil fuel economy to the decarbonized economy. And hopefully that experience, that example, will encourage latecomers to join the party. But I don't see very much scope for a global agreement. Now, that said, what I do believe in firmly, and even though I, I represent the UN here and, and we tend to deal with governments more than with the private sector, I do tend to think that markets are, are pretty powerful things. And fact of life is that there are three billion people on this planet who are horrendously underserved in terms of energy. Access to energy and the energy they do have access to is the kind of energy we want to get rid of. But happily, we live in a time where there are alternatives. There are technologies that now can respond to the need to provide clean and renewable energy access to even the poorest. Mm -hmm. And that is a massive market. And 
you can either sit back and say, well, we won't do it, and then you miss the train, or you can get engaged in that market and drive the, the new trend forward. Yeah? And I think that that is precisely where we should be encouraging progress. Yes, there is tremendous climate injustice, but it's not the rich countries that are going to change things. It's not the rich governments that are going to change things. It is the way in which people respond to the challenges that are out there. And in many respects, I'm very optimistic that we will find ways in which we can deploy technology, change the way we operate, move towards patterns of consumption and production that are more sustainable, because it makes sense, not on some global level, but because it makes sense in our individual lives, because it improves the bottom line of the individual business that saves on its resources and is more energy efficient in its production, and that when we start seeing that, it will create a, a demonstration effect that will make others who are hesitant or others who don't believe or others who are just sheer contrary, they will start to understand that it is not in their own interests to let that train leave the station without them. That is where I think we would have the greatest chance of success. We can sit and debate about who caused climate change until, well, the sea level rises and drowns all of us in the Caribbean. <laughs> or we can go ahead and change what we can Absolutely. change now, demonstrate that it works, and create a positive momentum for us to just move forward with it. it the time has gone long past to point fingers and assign blame. Let's work on the solutions. Let's take a couple more questions. Yes, sir, there, and then lady at the back in the middle. Thank you. I'm Ravi Chaudhary from India. I thought, let me get back to the first three words of your question. How can we? Firstly, I think we can, if we have the passion and if we have the commitment. Now, I want to make four quick bullet points. One, what is not mired, never gets done. Now, is it possible to start ranking the performance of nations by computing the per capita GDP growth of the bottom 80% of the people? Now, I think that is something which has not been done, but is doable, I believe. And I think that's where our focus has to be. The second point was, that lot of dialogue is on changing the global system, creating a new global ecosystem. I think we forget that the greatest obstacles to progress lie not outside, but within the country. And I think it's time each nation starts looking at it inside. And the third point is that why is it not happening? And I think Winnie made a very good point that there is a strong business politics nexus and we can't hide it and nor can they. Most of the global decisions, whether it's G20 or G7 or, or United Nations, are made on the premise that if big business doesn't make money, it doesn't get done. And finally, uh, a very a uh, uh, little philosophic comment that, you know, we, we grew from hunter's economy to industrial economy to information economy and knowledge economy. But the problem with knowledge economy is that those who have knowledge don't have power and those who have power don't have knowledge. Especially now. And <laughs> even those who have power and knowledge 
are not willing to share power and knowledge. I foresee the need to shift to the next phase, which I call wisdom economy, which is based on two principles, compassion and transparency. If leaders are transparent, they will have to be compassionate. And I think that is where the future lies for us, and we can build inclusive and sustainable economies. Thank you. Thank you. Hello there. Thank you for the discussion today. My name is Emma Krauss. I'm also a student at the Hertie School of Governance. I wanted to pick up a little bit on the conversation between business and government, um, specifically the linkage between the two and how government can um, uh, encourage business to go the right direction. I agree with Elliot that it has to come from the market, but I also agree with Winnie that it won't work if the government isn't involved. And I'm curious how that works. Is it national policies? Is it uh, regional agreements such as BEPS trying to address uh, tax evasion? Is it subnational agreements between governments that focus on the same policies when they have similar issues, even if they're not you know, the same nations? I'm curious what you think about that. Thank you. Is there a different way of business and government working together? Winnie. I think we need to understand that we are at a different point from where we were 40 years ago. We have an extreme form of shareholder capitalism, as I've just said. Governments are preoccupied with growth, GDP growth, and that masks poverty and the conditions of people and even the environment that is being destroyed. Businesses are preoccupied with profit for their shareholders and nothing else. It wasn't always like this, and it doesn't have to be like this. We can have businesses, and we are seeing it. I was in Davos at the beginning of this year at the World Economic Forum. I saw businessmen and women, mostly men, frightened, actually traumatized by the events of 2016, the political anger in the middle classes in the north was shocking these business people. And I was hearing them say, we need new metrics. We have, we have to change the way business is done, but we need new metrics from our shareholders because we are required to deliver a profit in a short time and shares to our shareholders. Unless this changes, we will not be able to respond to the political anger. So now, this means... I also saw it in the climate change process. <coughs> I saw business take the lead from governments. I saw business forming groups and saying the way we do business is bad for the long-term future of our sure. businesses. <coughs> it's bad for society, for people. It's bad for the environment. Let's change. Mm -hmm. And different groupings started being formed yes. of business leaders who want a world where there's a win for everybody. So I really... And, and so when we talk about business and say business will always want a profit. I don't agree. <laughs> business wants benefits for the shareholder, for the society, for the environment, for the consumer, for everybody. Okay. That's the business we want. Equally, governments must take the wisdom of 
of Justice Brandeis of the United States Supreme Court, who once said that you can have democracy or you can have wealth concentrated in the hands of a few, but you can't have both. Leaders must now run governments and take a distance from business and do public policy for the benefit of everybody. Who are the biggest investors in Africa, in Ethiopia, in Mozambique? These are not big companies, these are the Chinese, and this is not, not the big Chinese uh, shareholder wanting to make profit. This is politics. This Chinese is, this companies. This is politics, and I was in Mozambique, in the northern of Mozambique, where they have a lot of gas, a lot of things, and I said, that's great, and there are buildings, and, they said, and, and I talked to the to the premier of this northern part and said, that's great, the people will be lucky to see. Oh, no, he said, because for the next 10 years, this is our problems, they will not get anything. He said, why? Well, we had to make concessions to the Chinese okay. that they don't pay tax, that they bring their own people, and, 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 and said, why did you do this? Yeah. Well, 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 this was not the big shareholders with the big money. Excuse me. You are very one-sided, I must really say. Let's take a river. A river is a French company. It has been mining uranium in Niger for more than 30 years, taking uranium to make energy to light up homes and industries in France. The people of Niger are in total darkness. Niger decided to now change its tax code and remove the tax holidays, the law, royalty tax, whatever, <clears throat> and made a law to make companies, all companies, pay their fair share. Arriva said, we will close and go because we, mu- we want to continue paying almost no tax. The people of Niger stood up, civil society, ordinary peasants said, no, enough is enough, you must pay your fair share. We supported them. Today, Niger gets 30 billion, 30, yes, 30 billion dollars more from its bauxite, from its uranium, because of the tax code that it has brought in. You can't keep saying Chinese companies, European companies, it's business all over the world, working in an environment where the rules have been rigged whether they are tax rules, intellectual property rules, we are not here to point fingers at one country or another. We really must just honestly look at the global system and make it better for all. It's not about China versus European companies. No. It's a global system that is rigged. Unfortunately, we have timers against us this evening. Thank you to our panel. Thank you from Intelligence Squared. Thank you. Thank you, our audience, for your excellent questions. Thank you to the Green Growth Knowledge Platform for setting up tonight's event. Thank you to Page Berlin 2017 for having us. And thank you to the Ministry for the Environment here in Berlin for hosting this evening in these spectacular settings. And thank you, above all, to our distinguished and extremely inspiring panel. And to you, too, our moderators.